in our study through the gospel of Matthew today, specifically in Matthew chapter 24. Let me help uh, paint the scene a little bit and catch you up to speed. Uh, back in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus cleansed the temple, ultimately questioning the authority of the religious leaders and how they were operating and how they were preventing the people from worshiping God. Uh, now, because they were offended, they come back and they question Jesus' authority. All right? They question his authority. And Jesus, in a very creative way, he communicates three parables uh, to get these uh, similar messages across. Ultimately, by rejecting God's messengers, you've rejected God's message. Uh, lastly, we talked about how they rejected the king's invitation, what was ultimately rejecting the gospel. And because they rejected the king's invitation, they've rejected their position in the kingdom. Okay, so Jesus is trying to get all these things across to these religious leaders, not because he's mad at them, but he wants them to be saved and respond to him. Now we're going to see these Pharisees are very upset with Jesus and they decide to take a different route to to get back at him. They're going to try to uh, get him to, to trip up on his speech, to trip up on his talk. But Jesus not going to be fooled. He's not going to be stumped. He's going to use what they say to guide them to a truth. And this truth ultimately is this, that they would recognize their maker, that he is their maker. He created them. And not only that, that they would surrender to their maker, which brings me to the title of this teaching, surrender to your maker, surrender to your maker. I'll read the text. Then we'll pray and we'll dive in. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us powerfully uh, through this text, God, that you would um, just pierce our hearts and challenge our minds, uh, that we would grow um, just uh, from being in your word, because we know that your word, uh, it changes us. It has power to change us. And Lord, I pray that um, you would get whatever message you want to get across to us as individuals. Uh, Lord, we'd be inspired and encouraged and convicted uh, that you would open, enlighten the eyes of our understanding or that we would uh, be able to see um, the power and impact of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Surrender to your maker. Let's pick it back up in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. The Pharisees are always plotting. They're always planning. They're always trying to trap and trick Jesus. We see this uh, as a common behavior of the Pharisees. And they spend so much time and effort and energy thinking how, my, how they might catch Jesus in a trap when it would really take much less energy, much less effort to simply surrender to him. 
See, sometimes we can do this too. We can, not that we try to trap Jesus, but we can resist him. We can put so much time and effort and energy wrestling with God, struggling with his will for our life that we're ultimately not surrendered to it. When surrendering to the will of God is the easiest route to go. No one ever had a fight with God and won. Okay, it's never going to happen. It's not going to happen for us. Certainly doesn't happen for the Pharisees in this text. Look what they try to do. They're plotting against him. They plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Every man is bound to stumble inwards. So the Pharisees think, I know that he's going to stumble eventually if we can trip him, if we can trap him in his speech. James tells us this in James chapter 3, verse 8. In James chapter 3, right after Hebrews, James chapter 3, verse 8, he says, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. No man can tame the tongue. You ever have a situation where something came out of your mouth? You're like, whoop, where'd that come from? Oh my God, I didn't mean that. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It it was in your heart somewhere and it finally came out of your mouth eventually. No man can tame the tongue. Sometimes we say things that we don't really mean, but it's really in our heart and it's hard for us to really try to focus on communicating uh, in a way that doesn't cause offense or division or anything like that. No man can tame the tongue, but Jesus, he's not just any man. Look at James Chapter 3, I meant to tell you to hold your place and then I didn't. James chapter 3, verse 2. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Everyone stumbles in word unless he's a perfect man. But Jesus is a perfect man. So he never stumbles in word. Point number one, Jesus never stumbles in word. Jesus never stumbles in word. Like Samuel, none of his words fell to the ground, meaning everything that Jesus communicated either already has come true or is going to come true. He's absolutely perfect in speech. There's no way they're going to trip him up in his communication. It's just never going to happen because everything he says is true because he is the embodiment of truth. He refers to himself as the truth. So if the Lord's the truth and and he never stumbles in word and everything he says comes to pass, it comes to light, it, it it becomes truth in our life, then that means we can trust his word. Now, Jesus says, if you flip over maybe a page, maybe two, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, they're eternal. Okay, God's words are eternal. Now, when Jesus is saying this, he's not just talking about the red letters. Okay, he's not talking about red letter Christianity. Okay, well, just the things that Jesus said. No, no, he inspired all of it. In fact, Paul tells us to speaking to Timothy, he says the word of God, all the scriptures are God breathed. God God breathed these words. He inspired the prophets to write these words down exactly the way they were written. We can trust his scripture, not just what, not just the gospels, not just the red letters, not just the New Testament, the entirety of the word of God. We can trust it. We can trust that it's true. We can trust that it's from God. Uh, I'm reading this book. It's called Peculiar.
your glory. Okay, by John Piper. It's a great book so far. I'm uh, only about three chapters in, but uh, basically he goes into arguing why we can trust the scriptures, why we can trust them logically, why we can trust them historically, why we can trust them archaeologically, uh, the sport there, um, all these different things that that uh, that support the truth of scriptures. But one thing he keys on is the glory of the scriptures. Like man could not put these words together. Nobody's that smart. And we see it in this text, the way Jesus answers these Pharisees. There's not a person on the earth, I'm convinced, that would come up with this answer. Only Jesus. Why? Because he is God. And we can trust his word. Why can we trust his word? Well, we can trust his word because we can trust his character. It says in Hebrews chapter 6, in Hebrews chapter 6, speaking of the promise, the covenant made to Abraham, uh, the author writes this, he says, for when God, verse 13, Hebrews 6, 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Meaning the weight of God's word was built upon his character, was built upon his name, and his name is his character. In his name, it means everything to him. He will never break a promise. Also, every single thing that he says, it's going to come to pass. Even the things that are like in Revelation, like, whoa, I don't know about this. Angels flying around the world, preaching the gospel, all this stuff, the beast. and It's all going to happen. Every single thing that he said, when you look at the past things that he said and the prophecies that have been fulfilled throughout history, it's amazing. Seriously, when you look at this stuff, the glory of God through the scriptures, the historical, logical evidence, it does not take that much faith to believe in the scriptures. Now, you're hearing this from someone that completely believed that the Bible was false, okay? And I even struggled with it when I first came to faith. But as I looked into these things more and more, the more you study them, the more you realize this is true. This is not just true. It's from God himself. No one could have come up with this book on their own. See, the Pharisees... They're assuming that they're going to stumble Jesus in speech, but that's simply never going to happen. No one ever will make Jesus stumble in speech because he's true to his word and he communicates perfectly. Let's look what happens. Matthew chapter 22, verse 16. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone For you do not regard the person of men. So it says they sent to him their disciples. Jesus wasn't the only one with disciples. The the Pharisees, they had disciples too. Now, remember, a disciple is, is basically a follower of someone's teachings or doctrines or lifestyle. So the Pharisees, they had disciples just as Jesus had disciples. But we see the type of disciples the Pharisees had and the type of disciples Jesus had were extremely different. Okay, see, you could follow a Pharisee and become like a Pharisee, or you could follow Jesus and become like Jesus. But this is true either way. Point number two, you will become like who you follow. You will become like who you follow. See, 
The people that follow Jesus know they weren't perfect, but they recognized their need for a savior. The people that followed Pharisees, they were, they were caught up with knowledge and, and pride and arrogance and all these different things. That was being, what was being produced in them. Why? That's how the Pharisees were. We see Jesus describes the type of disciple that the Pharisees produced one page over in Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. That's a convert. Okay, a proselyte is a convert. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You're raising up disciples that are sons of hell. Literally, you're raising up people to condemnation. The people that are following you are going where you're going. They're going to hell. Why? Because they're stuck on this knowledge thing and what they think they know, and they don't have a relationship with the Lord. But this is true for all of us. We will become like who we follow. Uh, it could be a, a boss. It could be a spiritual leader. But ultimately, if we follow Jesus, we can't go wrong because we're all called to, to follow Jesus. Now, uh, all of us probably have different leaders in our life that we look up to. And there's a lot of things that we try to mimic about them because it's honorable and godly and all these different things. But ultimately, we're called to be disciples of Jesus. You're not a disciple of man. You're a disciple of Jesus Christ. If we follow him, we will become like him. But it's not just the disciples of the Pharisees here. We also see another group in verse 16. They were with the Herodians. The Herodians were believed to be a political party uh, that, that really favored and revered Herod, who was a corrupt leader. But you got these disciples of Herod, if you will. These people that are following him. These people that are becoming like him. Now, Herodians and Pharisees, they didn't typically hang out because they didn't really see eye to eye with everything. But what brings them together is what? A conflict with Jesus, right? Evil invites evil. And when you got two th evil things together, they seem to attract to one another. And that's what's happening. The Pharisees and the Herodians, what brings them together is this wicked plot to come against Jesus. And look what they say, trying to butter them up here. Verse 16, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of man. They say, teacher, we know that you are true. They're claiming to know something about Jesus. Okay, They're really trying to butter up. They're trying to build him up, but ultimately they're trying to bash him. So they use these strategic words to try to like, yeah, come on, Jesus, like re respond in this certain way. Okay, look at they said, teacher, we know you are true. They claim to know who Jesus is. But we already know Jesus has already told them, you don't recognize who I am. You have rejected the son of God. You've rejected the king of the kingdom. So they're claiming to know something that they obviously don't. This is true of Pharisees. They claim to know a lot more than they do. But this is also sadly true of many Christians. If you would with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1, Paul warning Christians, not Pharisees, he says this. No, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. See, the Pharisees, the scribes, these religious leaders, they were known for what they thought they knew. 
I know this, I know that, I know doctrine, I know the word of God. They could quote scripture. Many of them had the whole Torah memorized. But they didn't know what they ought to know. They didn't know, gnosko, have that intimate, uh, knowledgeable relationship with Jesus Christ. They were known for their knowledge. They weren't known for their love. That's what a Pharisee is known by. That's what a follower of a Pharisee is known by. I have a lot of intellect, but it's not attached to love. A follower of Jesus Christ, knowledge puffs up, love edifies. He says what? By this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, we become like who we follow. The love of Christ versus the assumed knowledge of the Pharisees. And obviously what they claimed to know was not true. We can even see the, the falsehood in how they communicate to Jesus. They call him teacher. Yes, Jesus is a teacher, but he's not just any teacher. He's the teacher. He's God in the flesh. He alone knows all things. He's not just some other rabbi, some other teacher. He's on another level. He's the one that holds all knowledge. Says, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God. He doesn't just teach the way of God. He is the way of God. They say, you teach the way of God in truth. He's not just communicating truth. He is the truth. It's John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So though there's partial truths and how they're communicating to Jesus, they're way off. <laughs> He's the fulfillment of these things. He's the fulfillment of a teacher. He's the fulfillment of the way of God. He's the fulfillment of the truth of God. And they're missing it. And then they say this, the end of verse 16, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of man. It's not saying that Jesus doesn't care about people. Basically uh, what they're saying, we know that you seek to please God over man. We know that you're trying to follow after God. Okay. You care more about God than you do men, which was true. Matthew chapter 22, verse 17. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They ask Jesus what he thinks as if they care. They don't care what Jesus thinks. If they actually were concerned with his opinion, they'd be disciples already. They'd already be following him, but they're not concerned what Jesus thinks. They're trying to trap him. And this is the trap. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, they're not speaking of the Roman law. They're speaking of the Jewish law, the Levitical law. Uh, out of the 613 laws, uh, is this legal paying taxes to Caesar? Now, we got to understand why they said this. Caesar claimed to be deity. He claimed to be a god, okay? So basically, the assumption was Caesar has the authority, but he's claiming to be god. If we pay taxes to Caesar, we're affirming him and his assumption that he's god. We're supporting him in that claim. By paying taxes, we're saying, yes, Caesar, you are god. We are in, in agreement that you are the ultimate authority. So if Jesus says it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Israelites are going to hate him. The Jewish people are going to hate him. You're basically saying that he's God, right? But if he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, now he's in trouble with the Romans. And the Romans are probably going to get him for tax evasion because so many different people were following Jesus. They wouldn't be, yeah, these multitudes not paying taxes now. Jesus would be in a lot of trouble. So they put him between a rock and a hard place, really 
hard to get out of this situation and answer it in a way that's going to serve both purposes. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Is it lawful to pay taxes? Don't you wish Jesus would have answered this differently? Don't you wish you would have said, yeah, don't worry about it. Give to God what is God's, but don't worry about Caesar. Don't worry about the United States. Don't worry about these governing authorities. That's sadly not what he said. Okay, Matthew chapter 22, verse 18. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Jesus perceived their wickedness. Yeah, he was looking at what was in their hearts. Though they were trying to butter him up, teacher, you speak the truth. You teach the way of God. You only care about what God thinks. That's not really what their hearts communicate. Jesus perceives what's in their hearts, what's behind those words. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God, God's looking at the heart. He's literally looking at the heart behind our words. Point number three, Jesus looks at the heart behind our words. Jesus looks at the heart behind our words. In Luke Chapter 6, verse 45, it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, okay? So what's communicated reveals the heart, but that doesn't mean that everything that's communicated is really the heart, meaning sometimes people say things, and that's not really what they're saying. There's, there's an underlying thing. There's a deeper thing that they're really trying to communicate. They might not even know what it is, but everything someone says isn't always what their heart is communicating. A silly, simple example would be sarcasm, right? When someone's sarcastic with you, if you know they're being sarcastic, you know what they're saying is not really what they're saying. They're saying the opposite of what they're saying. Okay. This is a simple, silly example, but we also see this in, in, in discipleship. Uh, when you look at, I call them the overbearers, okay? The, the people that communicate to you in this overbearing way, they may not be your boss, but they always want to pretend they are. And they direct you and they tell you what to do. And they always seem like they want to have control over your life. You do this, you do this. Hey, no, this is what you need to do. No, they, and you got those overbearers and you could look at that and be like, man, dude, they're so bossy and they're so controlling. Why are they this way? But that's not the heart of what's going on in their life. The reason that they're always trying to point people in other directions in that bossy, overbearing manner is because they don't feel like they have control over their own life. And they want to try to control someone else's life. And not only that, they're not trusting God to be in control of their life. And that's really the heart of the issue. When they give you all these directions and that's the character quality that you see in them, what they're really saying is, I'm struggling with trusting God to have control over my life. I'm struggling with trusting his sovereignty. It's a cry for help, literally. And if you can see that and not get offended by it and say, hey, um, yeah, I understand, you know, this is what you think uh, I should do. And, and, and you're very uh, stern about how you're directing me. Um, how's your relationship with the Lord been? Uh, are, are, you, are you really trusting? Are you trusting God? Are you struggling with that sovereignty? And simply put, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, share a word with them. That might build a little faith in them, build a little trust, encourage them to say, man, I don't have to try to control other people's lives just because I can't control my own. I I I can give that to God. God has control of my life. You got the overbearers. You also got the one-uppers, okay? You know the one-uppers? Like you tell them a story about like something cool that happened in your life and they feel like they got to tell you a similar story to relate but then just make it a little better. 
Like, oh, you have that experience, but uh, yeah, I had this one. And in other words, my experience was better than yours. Uh, and, and they'll do this, these one, the, the one upper thing. And you can look at that and be like, man, I was just trying to share something cool that, that I did or something cool God did in my life. And, and now I feel like you're trying to make yourself better than me. And it's easy to get like caught up with the, man, that's prideful. That, that's arrogant. Like, why, why don't you just like encourage me and what happened to me? Why do you got to, why do you got to talk to your, about yourself and, and one up me? But what's really going on, it's, it's not just pride and arrogance, it's insecurity. What they're trying to do is validate themselves to you. What they're trying to do is, is hope that you'll value them. If I can relate to them on this way and share a similar experience to them, then, then maybe they'll think I'm on an equal level than them. Maybe they'll think that, that I'm even a little better than them. It really comes down to the heart there. It isn't just pride it's not just there there's there's a heart behind that and it ultimately comes down to insecurity what they need is encouragement what they need is affirmation what they need is love and for you to for uh, them to know that you value them the point is is what someone is saying is not always what they're saying And, and just as jesus perceived their wickedness he was looking at the heart he's given us this ability as well to not just hear what someone's saying, but look at the heart about it. It's very easy for us to hear someone, especially if it's an overbearer or a one-upper, and get offended. And be like, dude, why, why are you acting like this towards me? But if we don't react, but respond, ask the Lord, hey, what's really going on in their life? Like, how do I approach this? How do I respond to this? You'll find that the Lord will give you something like, dude, it's not this, it's that. That's what you see, but this is really what's going on. This is what's in their heart. It's important for us to try to perceive uh, what's in the heart. Not that we know what's in the heart. Jeremiah says uh, that, that we don't know what's in the heart, but the Lord can give us the supernatural ability to, to get a glimpse of it and get an idea about what's really going on. So he perceived their wickedness. See, their lips were saying one thing, teacher, you speak the truth, you know, you love God, all these different things. Their lips were speaking one thing, but their hearts were speaking something different. Jesus confronted the Pharisees on something similar a few chapters before. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, quoting, uh, quoting Isaiah, he says, look at verse 7, Hypocrites, well did, Isaiah pro- well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. All talk and no heart. See, Jesus, he knows when we're all talk and no heart. Obviously, he's speaking to the Pharisees, but this can apply to any of us. See, we might know a lot of scripture, and we might be able to quote a lot of verses, and we might be able to speak that, that, that Christianese language. You know the Christianese language? Like when someone like just blurts out all the scripture and all these different things, and it's like, oh, what are you saying to me? I don't really understand what you're, what you're saying to me. And, and this Christianese thing, when we fall into it as the church, and it's like, yeah, we, we say these things, glory to God, and yada, yada, yada. The things aren't bad in them of, of themselves, but, but what are we really trying to say? What are we really trying to get across? Because the Lord, he's looking at the heart behind our communication. He's not just listening to our words. He's looking at our heart. This could be with worship too. That's what he's saying. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Are our hearts really in it, in, these, in, the, in our Christian life in general? Are we communicating things uh, in a way that's really pointing to a, a genuineness, a, a sincerity? When the Lord looks at your heart, what will he find? What will he find? 
Is this just talk or is this true? Am I just saying these things or do I truly believe them? Am I just talking about it or or am I trying to walk in it as best as I can? Because the Lord, he knows, he, he sees we can't hide from him. And the Pharisees, they were mistaken on this. They say one thing, their heart says another, and Jesus calls them out on it. Look at what he says. He says, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Why do you test me, you hypocrites? They're testing him. Uh, obviously, they're going to fail this test. And as believers, we would never like test Jesus like this, you know, like try to get him to stumble on his word or try to prove his word wrong or something like that. But there are ways as believers that we can test God. Let me show you in Judges chapter 6. In Judges chapter 6, this is about Gideon's fleece. Now, there are different opinions by, about this, but I'm going to share you my, with you mine, and I'll tell you why. Okay, in Judges chapter 6, Gideon had already asked God for confirmation and direction and a sign. Okay, so he's already got the confirmation. Look what he does. Judges chapter 6, verse 36. So Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said... Why is he saying that? Because God already said it. God said it in the form of a sign that he confirmed to him through the angel of the Lord. But he already confirmed this thing to him. Now look what Gideon does. Look, verse 37, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Okay, if I come outside in the morning and the fleece is covered in water, but the ground around it isn't, then I'll know this is confirmation that I'm supposed to go fight in this battle. Look at verse 38. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl, a bowl full of water. So God did exactly what he asked him to do. Look at verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Why is he asking God not to be angry with him? Because he's struggling with doubt. He's not having faith. God confirmed it to him twice. And now he's going to ask me, don't be angry at me. I'm going to ask you one more time. It says, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test. He's testing God. I pray just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Now we can look at this and say, wow, God answered Gideon according to his fleece. But this is not a good example. Okay. He said, do for me as you already said. God had already told him that he was going to be with them in the battle. Then he throws out the fleece and he still doubts. He throws it out again for something opposite. He says he's ultimately testing God. And we can do this as believers with our fleeces. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a firm believer in praying for confirmation. But that, God doesn't owe us confirmation. Uh, sometimes we'll seek so much confirmation that we're trying to put ourselves in a position where we don't have to walk by faith. I just want to walk by sight. I don't want to have to walk by faith, Lord. So give me neon line, uh, neon signs and bright lights so I know the way. It's like, man, we got to leave some room for faith. Gideon wanted to be so certain. 
Now, there's some respect there because he's seeking the Lord for confirmation, but he's overdoing it. And he's testing God. And he's trying to prevent himself from walking by faith. We know later he's in the hall of faith for this battle that he fights. So I'm not saying he wasn't a man of faith. He absolutely was. This just isn't a good example. We can do this as believers. Lord, I won't go until you show me, until you show me, until you show me. Lord, show me and I'll go. And the Lord's like, go and I'll show you, okay? And that's the heart of the Lord, that we walk by faith and not by sight. This is a way that we can test God. There's other ways as well. Counting on his grace constantly. Oh, Lord, I know that uh, I know that if I keep sinning, grace will abound, right? And Paul's like, no, don't do that. Don't have that mentality. That's the wrong uh, idea behind grace. You've heard it said before. Grace is for the fall, not for the jump, okay? Grace is for the fall, not for the jump, meaning we don't jump into sin just going, oh, well, God's going to have grace on me anyways. No, no, it's for the fall, meaning I accidentally did this. Like, I, I messed up. I, I, I screwed up. I, I did something wrong. Lord, please have grace on me. We don't jump into grace, okay? It's for the fall when we, oh, I messed up. I, I made a mistake. Sometimes we can think, oh, God's so gracious, I'm going to jump into the sin, and it might not be grace that's waiting on the end of that. It might be his discipline. Now, he does the discipline thing because he loves us, but we might get the rod. You know, we might not get the grace all in an effort to display his love for us regardless. But there's so many different ways we can test God. So they're testing God. And Jesus calls him out on that. He says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Why does he call them hypocrites? Because they were the men that were called to be proficient and passionate about the truth of God's word. They were supposed to be the experts when it came to the Bible, the, the Old Testament. But we see they're hypocrites because the very thing that they're claiming to revere, to respect, to be passionate about, they're disregarding. They aren't concerned about the truth. They're concerned about power. And this is a power trip. And they're offended because Jesus questioned their authority. That's why he goes back and questions theirs. The very thing that they were called to, to, to represent, they weren't concerned about. They were concerned about having authority. And that's why they're offended with all these things Jesus says. Matthew chapter 22, verse 19. He says, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. So there was believed to be three different taxes, okay? You had the ground tax, the ground tax, like meaning the stuff that comes from the ground. Uh, so it would be 10% of grain production uh, and 20% of oil and wine production that you needed to give to the governing authorities, okay? There was also an income tax. This was 1% of a man's income, right? We have income tax. Uh, there's also a poll tax, and this was one denarius that was paid by each man and each woman every year, okay? The tax that he's talking about right here is the poll tax, hence why they give him a denarius. Now, a denarius was generally a, a, a day's pay, okay? So a day's pay for the poll, poll tax for the entire year. Matthew chapter 22, verse 20, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So we see Caesar's image was on the denarius. He says, render to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Ultimately, Jesus is saying, uh, we have an obligation. We have a responsibility to be submissive to the governing authorities. Okay, Whether that's a law 
or whether that's with taxes. We're responsible to submit to authority, even if we don't like them, even if we don't agree with them. The only way we can justify not submitting to the governing authorities is if that authority asks us to sin. Okay, and we see this in Scripture. In Daniel chapter 3, uh, remember the Babylonians were trying to make Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bow down and worship the golden statue, right? And they're like, no, we're not doing it. Like, that's a direct sin against our God. He tells us to not worship any other gods before him. So we see they're thrown into the fire. The Lord protects them. That's the end of that. But they were able to uh, be disobedient to authority because the authority asked them to sin. We also see in Acts chapter 4, when John and Peter are brought before the Sanhedrin, uh, the Sanhedrin says, don't preach the name of Jesus anymore. And what do they say? We can't help but speak the things that we've seen and heard. We have to, it would be a sin for us not to preach the gospel because the Lord told us to preach the gospel. So, render to Caesar what Caesar's? Yes, we're called to submit to authority unless that authority asks us to sin. And it says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. In other words, whose image is on the denarius? Caesar's. Whose image is on you? That's what he's saying. You're created in the image of God. Render to God what is God's. We see from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 that man and woman were created in the image of God. It's referred to as the Imago Dei. Okay? We were created in God's image. Now, there's a lot of different thought behind this and uh, I'll explain uh, as briefly as I can. Uh, but when there's no like clear definition of what it means to be created in God's image in the Bible. But we can look at different scriptures and, and form a pretty valid, pretty solid uh, understanding of, of what God was saying when he said we were created in his image. Now, first off, we see he was making the distinction between us and the animals, okay? We're not like the animals, okay? We have the opportunity to be children. The animals don't have that opportunity. There's the distinction between man and the animals. Ultimately, simply put, we're called to resemble God. In many ways, we're called to resemble God. We're called to resemble him eternally, meaning we we live forever. Okay, that was God's plan from the beginning. We're called to resemble him mentally. Uh, We think, we think a lot more than the animals. Uh, uh, We think so much that we end up desiring to create things like God. Like we like to create stuff. We only get that from our creator. So there's the mental side of it. We're also called to re, uh, resemble God uh, morally and socially. I'll say socially first. Uh, we were created to be in relationship, okay? We were created to be in relationship with both God and man, okay? God, he is in relationship with God, the Trinity. They're in relationship with him. And he also wants relationship with man. We're called to resemble that. If we're missing either one of those things, we're missing out, period. We're missing out on what this life is about, See, you guys have probably even shared it yourself. I have personally. You'll hear a lot of Christians say, when I first came to God, I had that, I had that God, that G-shaped hole in my heart. What are you saying? I'm empty and I'm lacking something. And I never knew what I was lacking my whole life until I met God. Why? Because you were created socially to resemble him socially, not just to have a relationship with men, but to have, and women, but to have a relationship with God. Okay. So that's the part, part of it that we resemble. We also, as I mentioned, are called to resemble him morally. We were created to resemble him morally, but what happened? 
the fall happened, sin happened, right? And now we've all inherited uh, the sinful nature of Adam. That's not what it was supposed to be like. We weren't created to sin. We were created with free will and they chose to sin. But in sinning, we've corrupted the image. We've distorted the image. That's why when Jesus came back, uh, came to the earth uh, and redeemed us uh, by his blood on the cross and then rose from the dead, he also gifted us with what? The Holy Spirit, okay? And it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says this, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. The image that we were once created in, we're being transformed back into the image of God. We're being transformed into the perfect image of Jesus Christ. We're called to resemble him in that image, in that perfect moral character. These are some of the things uh, that, that are being referred to when we discuss the image of God. Called to resemble him in these ways. In this context, when Jesus is saying that, uh, basically what he's getting at is that um, render to God what is God's, the whole spiritual, physical, emotional peace of a human being, give that to God, okay? Give it all to God. Render to God what is God's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, pay your taxes, uh, but give to God what is God's. What's that? Everything else. Okay, and that's point number four. Give to God what is God's. Give to God what is God's. Well, we got to first answer, what is God's? Let me show you. For the believer in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, First Corinthians 6, uh, 19, it says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It says, I don't know if you know this, but you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You were bought at a price. When we entered into that relationship with Jesus, basically we were accepting the price that was paid. The price? Yeah, his blood. And by accepting that relationship, we were claiming, no, I'm not just asking the Lord to forgive me of my sins uh, and wash me clean so I can enter heaven. No, we were, we were, in other words, enslaving ourselves to the master. Because the Bible says this, I, I, it doesn't matter what we think about our circumstances and who's in control. The Bible says this, you got one or two slaves. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness, which means you're a slave to Christ. You're a slave to something. It doesn't matter how free you think you are. The only freedom we could experience is being enslaved to Christ because he's a good, he's a good master. So when he says, you are not your own, you are bought at a price, you don't belong to yourself. We don't belong to ourselves. He's purchased us with the blood of the lamb. That means all of it, every piece of it is the Lord's. We're called to give it to him. What is God's? All of it. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12 he says present your body as a living sacrifice okay that doesn't mean that we're supposed to go back to the levitical uh system of sacrifices and like burn ourselves okay i think there's a lot of cults that have taken this out of context um that, that's not what it means uh it means we're supposed to give our lives fully to god he paid the price for our life he gave his life in hopes that we would in return give him our lives 
How does this play out practically? Well, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, if you want to write it down, Colossians 3, 23, it says, do everything as unto the Lord. Do everything for God's glory. Everything you do, whether you eat, whether you sleep, whether you drink, whether you play with your kids, whether you have dinner with your wife, whether you go to work, whether you go to the gym, do it all for the glory of God. Okay? That doesn't mean that, again, we're all called to ministry, but even in your secular jobs, there's a way to operate in your secular job and giving glory to God. How can I take advantage of this day and be a light to the darkness around me? Is there an opportunity to invite someone to church or share the gospel or get them to the barbecue? How can I take this day and do it all for the glory of God? That's what it's about. That what, that's what, what it means to give to God what is God's. All for his glory because it's all his. Is there something that God's asked you to give him that you haven't? Is there something that the Lord's knocked on your heart or, or spoke to you through people, places, things, the word, however he got the message across and he said, hey, hey it's time to give this up. It's time for you to surrender this thing to me. And that could be many things. It could be a relationship. It could be a relationship. Maybe it's not even a bad relationship. Maybe he's just saying, hey, this is going too far and I need to pull you back and you got to give this to me so 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 I can help you out with this thing. Uh, it could be a, a conflict that, that you're having or you had with a family member or a friend. Uh, it could be bitterness and, and resentment of uh, because of something that happened so long ago. It could be a bad habit. It could be a hobby that's gotten too far out of hands. It could be a child. It could be anything. But the Lord says, give to God what is God's. And there's nothing that's not his. It's all his. We're stewards over what he's entrusted to us, but it's not ours. It's actually his. And sometimes they'll say, hey, you're going too far on this. You're, you're turning this thing into an idol and you're putting this God before me. And I want you to give it up. Why? God only asks us to give up stuff because he wants to give us something better. He never asks us to give up anything because he's got something worse for us. He asks us to give him things because he wants something so much better for us. When we choose to, to reject that and we choose to not give up the thing that he's asking us to give up, he doesn't lose. We're the ones that lose. He doesn't lose anything. We're the ones that lose. We're the ones that miss out. Give to God what God's every single piece of our life is God's. But we got to give it to him. Matthew chapter 22. Last verse, we'll close here. When they had heard these words, they marveled and let him left him and went their way. So they marveled at his word. Why? Because it was the perfect answer. Okay? There's not a human being on the face of this earth, so I'm, con- I'm convinced, that could have got out of this one. Okay? Oh, man, what am I going to say? The Jews are going to hate me or the Romans are going to, I don't know what to do here. But Jesus, he has this perfect answer, so they marvel. They're like, dang, I thought we got him again, and he gets out of it, and now we're like feeling convicted. His word is so marvelous, because ultimately that what, that's what they're doing. Anytime Jesus speaks, it's the word of God. They're marveling at the word of God. Do you still marvel at the word of God? Uh, maybe you're newer to the faith, and you're still like, man, every time I read the scripture, it's like, bah, mind blown. Like, pff, what is, oh my gosh, that's so cool, the glory of God. 
but maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time and the marvel thing, it just starts to cease. Marvel, in the Greek, in other words, it means astonished, to wonder. It's just amazing to you. Are you in a place where you don't have that anymore? Because if you are, that's a problem. Because the Word of God is just not like any other book. It's not just words on a page. It's inspired by God. It's powerful. It's God-breathed. And that means not only was it breathed into the prophets to communicate these things, it means God's trying to breathe life into us through the Word of God. As we read it, as we're in it, as we study it, as we hear it, but are we marveling at it as we once were? We marvel at the word of God. These guys, these Pharisees, they marvel at the word of God. They marvel at how Jesus communicates this answer to them. But it says, look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 22. So they, they, when they heard his, these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Though they marveled at his words, his word didn't lead them to have relationship with him. He, they marveled at the words. They saw the power of it and they walked away from it and went their way. It's such a shame when people see the power, the life-giving properties of the word of God and walk away from it. Yeah, I know it's powerful, but that isn't for me. That's a shame, but that's what the first, they were struck by it. They were astonished. They were stunned, but they didn't allow that to Uh, bring them to a place where they were ready to receive it, ready to surrender to it. It says they went their own way. See, when the Lord reveals the power of his word to us, our only reasonable response is to walk his way, not go our own way. But so often people will hear the power and then choose a different way. Jesus, he communicated like this for a purpose, with an intention. He wanted them to recognize that he is their maker. You know why this word's so powerful? Because I am the one that inspires. I am the word of God. It's because I am the one that created you. I am your maker. But his hope, his heart wasn't just that they would recognize his identity, but they would also surrender to him as their God. I'll end with this. If there's something, uh, maybe the Lord stirred in your heart, and you're like, man, I haven't really given to God what is God's. Yes, I, I proclaim that he's my maker, but I haven't really gotten to that place of surrender. There's certain things I've surrendered, uh, but I haven't resend, re- surrendered all the things. Need I remind you that the Lord only asks us to give him things for our benefit, not for his benefit. He asked us to give us things because he wants to give us something better. So he says, hey, 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 let go of this thing. Surrender this thing. I got something so much better. The way you're going about this is all wrong. We need to do it a different way so that it can get blessed. Whatever that thing is in your life, if you got something, get rid of it this week. Surrender it to the Lord. doesn't mean that you'll never have it back. But if you do it, you'll get it back in a better form, a, a better manner. And then there's other things that we're called to surrender for good. So I'd encourage you. He's not the one that loses when we choose not to surrender. We are. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word, that it's life-giving, that you literally breathe life into us. You pierce our hearts as we study it. God, but I pray that it wouldn't just uh, 
stay there. Lord, that you would give us the strength to do something with it. Lord, we we know that a a faith that doesn't work is a dead faith. God, so we pray that you would um, allow these life-giving words uh, to penetrate our hearts and and encourage us to to live them out. God, whatever there is um, in any person's heart, in, in the church, myself included, Lord, if there's things that need to be surrendered, I pray that you would give us the strength and the trust to surrender them, knowing that you only ask us to, to give up things because you want to give us better things. Uh, so please uh, bless us as we go about this week. Strengthen us in your name. Amen.